Hey, it's Max Linsky. Welcome back to uh, With Her. This is part two of our epilogue. In part one, Hillary and I talked about election night and the aftermath. And uh, in this conversation, we talked about her book, what happened. We talked about the process of writing it. Uh, we talked about the man she lost to. And we talked about what's next for her. But we started uh, after she noticed my lucky Larry Bird socks. Are you really a Celtics fan? Um, <laughs> yes. That's not okay? It's perfectly fine if you like... Are you a Bulls fan? No, you know, I was. I was a Bulls fan. Oh, but then you became a Fairweather fan? Sorry, rooting yeah. for somebody else? No, I became a you-don't-have-Michael-Jordan-anymore fan. Yeah. I went to a game, and uh, I was first lady, and they invited me to come to the locker room after the game. I thought that was pretty cool. And I mean, these great athletes are just limping into the locker room and then immediately immersing themselves in big buckets of ice water. Yeah. And Dennis Rodman walks in and he goes, oh, hey. <laughs> and I said, hi, how are you? It's a because, fantastic uh, Rodman impression. He, it, it, was, uh, it was pretty fun because in the 90, I can't remember, 92 or 96 convention, there were buttons made when he had his hair purple his hair was on my face, and it said, Hillary Rodman Clinton, as bad as you want to be. And so we had a bond. And so he sees me, and he goes, hey. And all of a sudden, he whips off his jersey, which is sopping wet. Yeah. And he flips it over my shoulder. He says, here, this is for you. And I was like sweat flying everywhere. And it is now in the Clinton Library. <laughs> Our like diplomatic hopes like now rest on that guy. Yes, that, uh, there's uh, something to be said for that. Yeah, yeah right. Yeah, well, that's... we have no other diplomats right now, so <laughs> we're kind of desperate. You know, this poor State Department is totally decimated. You want to talk about this book? I do want to talk about the book because I want to go back and forth with you about what happened and what we can do to make sure it doesn't happen again. You've started your book tour. Yes. You're doing your thing. Yes. Are there like annoying book tour questions that you keep getting over and over again that I should avoid? Actually not, because we've only started with the best minds and the strongest thinkers we could find. So we know that you're up to the task. Well, speak, speaking of strongest thinkers, we're in your basement <laughs> yes, you and uh, there's, there's a bunch of books around yes. and I was waiting for you to show up and looking at the books and uh, there's a lot of uh, great titles, legendary titles. The one that uh, jumped out to me is um, uh, Global Warming for Dummies. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's pretty amazing that that's in your basement. Yeah, well, it is because we've had to pull it out to try to talk to people. <laughs> people don't want to listen. And so Bill and I got kind of desperate. And, uh, <laughs> okay, how are we going to explain this? You know, there's an atmosphere and there are these things called greenhouse gases, <laughs> and they trap heat, and that affects water temperature. And oh my gosh, have you heard of Harvey and Irma and maybe Jose? <laughs> yeah. We look at any source we can find to try to explain things to people. Uh, but you're also in the midst of all of our sports books and a lot of our, our sports memorabilia. Yeah, there's good, there's yeah, good, good gear stuff. down here. Lots I don't know if there's gear. anything about the Celtics. I, I I can't remember. There's a Bill Simmons book up there. That Is counts. there a Bill Simmons yeah, book? Yeah, Bob okay. Cousy biography. Oh, okay. Well, all kinds you, know, of Celtics you should stuff. feel right at home. feel very comfortable. <laughs> um, the book was supposed to be like uh, quotes, right? You know, originally, 
my publisher that has published all the books I've done, going back to It Takes a Village, wanted me to publish a book of quotes because I've collected quotes my whole life. I carry, I carry a little notebook filled with ones that I've collected. I have other you know, sources of them, and I find it you know, comforting and encouraging uh, and funny to look at them from time to time. So, you know, they knew that I'd be at loose ends. And so they said... <laughs> You'd have hey, some time on your hands. Yeah, I'd have some time on my hand. They said, you know that book you have talked... Would you like to do that? I said, oh, well, maybe let me think about it. And I, I ended up telling them, I think, like in January. I said, yeah, okay, I'll, I'll do that. And it took like about a week or two of trying to outline and plan. I thought, you know, that's not what I want to write about. I want to figure out and gather all the evidence to guide me what happened in this election. And people said, oh my gosh, you know, don't do that. That's a terrible idea. And I said, you know, it may be, but it's kind of essential to me and to the people that worked with me that we do our best to figure this out. What did we miss? And what were the external forces that hit us that may or may not ever occur again, but more likely than not will. And I called two of my speechwriters and the head of research for the campaign. I said, are you guys game for helping me do this? Because the publisher said to me, look, if you're going to do it, you're going to have to get it out before the end of the year because otherwise, you know, it's going to get drowned in everybody else writing books about the campaign. I said, oh, okay. <laughs> and so we began this intensive forced march starting in, I guess, February to put it together. And it was a painful, exhausting, ultimately cathartic experience, which helped me get through all of the aftermath of the election and what Trump was doing every day in Washington. How do you start that project? Like, I got to imagine that for a couple of months there, you were just kind of like knocking around this house. You were right. Thinking what happened quite often. Yes, I was. Uh, yes, I was. So did you have some theories at that point? Like, how do you go about uh, I, doing I had this project? some theories, and I had to prepare an outline. And I, I, you know, kicked ideas back and forth with my team about what needed to be in the book and how we would uh, try to describe, you know, my attitude, my truth about what happened. And I still was into the quote thing, because I thought, you know, I can use quotes to illustrate. And there are quotes, as you saw in the book, that, you know, the numbers shrank enormously, but they're, you know, they're ones that are meaningful to me. And once I began working on the outline, and once we began to argue back and forth about what needed to be in it, I was very open to hearing from other people. And people started coming to see me, people that I knew well and people I hardly knew at all, with theories. And it was fascinating because I learned things in the process of preparing and writing this book that I wasn't fully aware of. And I write about it uh, write about them in the book. So people were coming and saying, you know, we really have to unpack the Mercers, Cambridge Analytica, the impact of WikiLeaks. I mean, you've got to really look at that. Of course, I knew that the proximate cause of my loss was the Jim Comey letter on October 28th. I knew that. And I was obviously relieved every time somebody else came forward and said, you know what, that's what happened. And Nate Silver, who I have a high regard for, was the first to say, you know, she would have been president but for. You know, if the election had been on October 27th, she would have been president. So I knew that was a big part of the story, but I didn't think it was the only part of the story. And 
things began to happen. People would send me articles. People would direct me to others. And, I, and, a, and a, a picture started to emerge of the principal reasons why I think I lost and why we have to be really vigilant against the threats uh, that are still present against our country. Sounds like some form of like really radical, intense therapy to like invite people to your house to it was. break it, this all down. Yeah, it really was, Max. I mean, because once I got into it, I got very concerned that I, I'd be a, as objective as possible. Look, I'm well aware of the mistakes I made. I write about them. But I didn't think that was the whole story. And I wanted to listen to voices and and we had some great arguments i mean people would say this is you know this is one of the things that happened other people no no so it was just a deeper and deeper dive all the time okay you prove your point you prove yours i don't want to go on anecdote i don't want to go on feeling show me your evidence were you arguing too absolutely absolutely you know there were people who would say well, I mean, do you really think Comey made that big a difference? I'd say, absolutely. Well, show me the evidence. So we began to acquire, you know, acquire the evidence. And then people would say, well, you know, I don't think the Russians was that big a deal. Okay, let's figure out what we know and, and what more we have to know. And yeah, you know what? It turns out it was. So I had a theory of the case, but I was very open to being proven wrong. Um, and we just kept plugging away. And you know what? Some of the things we're only going to find out now. Like we finally, through Facebook's own admission, can say what we believed, which is that they were taking foreign money and running fake news. Yeah, there's so many points in the book where you're like, this is probably going to yeah. like have changed by the time it comes yeah. out. And that's, that yeah. was... Yeah, and because we, this is an ongoing story and it's one we have to get right. Were there things in that process, assumptions you had that got proven wrong? I would say we went back and forth on some that I was um, not 100% sure on, and they're still kind of in that category of up in the air. I had some original ideas about why Comey did what he did. That kind of evolved over time. I still don't think we know. And so I don't, I, I, I had some stuff written, which I took out because I couldn't prove it, but I don't understand why he did what he did especially when he wouldn't tell the country that uh, the Trump campaign was being investigated for links to Russia. So none of it made sense. So I kind of leave that open because I, I couldn't prove one way or the other. What was it like? So like you were a couple months into writing the book, spending so much time in the book on Comey. What, what was that day like for you when he got fired? Really fascinating. And remember, the first rationale for firing him yeah was a memo which summarized everything i believed and which others had said other prosecutors both republicans and democrats had said you know this guy really was out of bounds he was unprecedented in how he behaved both in july and in october and so i was you know feeling like okay you know that's that's the story but i knew that the reason he got fired was because of Russia. So in the book, I say, let's keep two thoughts in your head at the same time. He really stepped out of bounds and behaved uh, wrongly in the email investigation. But he should not have been fired for investigating Russia. 
and you know that that's the kind of tough call you have to make and that I made uh, in this book. Uh, so the Russia investigation is so big, it's so important. And I thought, okay, you know, they fired him because they didn't think they could control him. And one of the reasons they didn't think they could control him was because he violated Department of Justice protocol in the way he treated me. So, I mean, it's all connected in uh, lots of cross currents here. But the bottom line is, you know, what I say in the book about his behavior is right, but Trump's firing him was wrong. It must have just been surreal, though, to see Rosenstein put that letter forth that's like, basically what you were writing in the book it was i mean every day that went by as we you know we we you know really kept working and working i laid out the outline you know i i had a a first draft but things were changing so fast that we had to respond to everything and i had to revise and and amend um so yes it was both somewhat validating and gratifying to see other people saying what i believed uh, even people on the other side of the aisle. Uh, it didn't explain why he did what he did, but the fact that it happened and that it had the impact on the election was no longer uh, debatable. But this went on all the time. And you know, shortly after I started writing the book, uh, uh, a uh, professor from the University of Kentucky She's a gender studies professor, and she'd written about women historical figures. Uh, I think Anne Boleyn and got nominated for Pulitzer, as I remember. She wrote a book called The Destruction of Hillary Clinton. And it was a kind of academic book, and apparently she'd been working on it during the campaign. She published it. It kind of fell off the radar. Nobody knew about it. And a friend of mine uh, saw it and got a copy and, and sent it to me. And I mean, she had chapter and verse about the sexism and misogyny uh, in this campaign, which is endemic in our society still. But she had references and evidence that I hadn't seen. I hadn't paid that much attention to it. And all of a sudden, like, wow, look at that. You know, I got to figure out how to talk about that. That's not easy to talk about. That's why I have a whole chapter, you know, on being a woman in politics and about sexism and misogyny, because we better start talking about it. So much of it is just embedded in people's assumptions and stereotypes. I never heard of this woman, and all of a sudden, here's her book. So things like that happened, I would say, every week, if not every day, that really informed my thinking and gave me a lot more material to work with. When you sat down to write that chapter about women in politics, uh, I mean, uh, you have been a woman in politics for quite some time. I have been. You've mm-hmm. been thinking about it for a while. Mm-hmm. You wrote about it differently than I've heard you talk about it before. It felt to me more honest, mm-hmm. maybe, or at least less reserved. Yes. Yeah, I think that's right. And I'm interested in the actual process and moments of writing that. Like, you're in a room by yourself. Mm. Are you th- have you been thinking that way the whole time and now you're just willing to commit it to paper? Is something new coming out of you that you didn't uh, quite realize? How does that work? It's a great question, Max, because you're right. I've lived with it. I've watched it. I've experienced it. But like so many women, I 
really didn't want to call attention to it or give in to it because you pay a price for that. Uh, you speak out against sexism. You point your finger at misogyny. And, you know, the cries go up. And if you're in a professional position, it can quickly turn into you're not tough enough, you're not strong enough, come on, you know. And we now know it is endemic, and certainly not just in politics. I mean, everything coming out of Silicon Valley in the you know last 10 months has been fodder for my thinking. Businesses in other parts of the country, everywhere. So I thought, you know, I have to be really as unvarnished uh, and honest, candid as I can be, because it's not just about me. I left the State Department with a 69% approval rating because I did a really good job, but it was a job in service of a man. I'm proud of that. I am proud to have been in Barack Obama's cabinet. I am proud to have supported him in uh, those four years. But before the election, my friend Sheryl Sandberg came to see me and she brought two of the researchers, one from Penn, one from Stanford, who have studied all of this in depth. And she left me with several messages, and, and here's three of them. One, the research is absolutely undeniable. The more professionally successful a man is, the more likable he is. The more professionally successful a woman is, the less likable she is. A woman in service to others is viewed favorably. A woman ambitious and acting on her behalf is viewed unfavorably. The classic example is if I go to somebody and ask that they give a raise to my coworker because my coworker really has earned it, I get points. If I go and ask for a raise because I feel like I've earned it, I get penalized, whereas a man doing exactly the same thing doesn't. And so Cheryl said to me, just remember they, and the they was voters, the press, they will have no empathy for you, for your struggle, for what you represent. And so I've always just sucked it up. You know, I sucked it up in 08 when some, you know, really unpleasant things happened to me. I just kept going. Uh, I sucked it up and I was Secretary of State when, you know, I'd go to the Middle East and they'd treat me like an honorary man because that was the only way that they could deal with me. And I sucked it up in the 2016 campaign when I was called names and things were said and done to me. And one of the most interesting things, which nobody's picked up on yet in the book, you know, we recently had this, you know, big kerfuffle, this condemnation of Kathy Griffin for the picture she had of herself holding a head of Trump, like a play on Perseus holding the head of Medusa. They were selling T-shirts and mugs at the Republican convention with Trump holding my head. Nobody said a word, not a word. And so really smart commentators like Margaret Atwood, who you know, wrote Handmaid's Tale, said, you know, what was said about me was medieval. And I just powered through it. I thought, okay, you know, they will have no empathy. If you stop and point it out, they'll think you're weak. And I have a story in there about, you know, the moment my, my eyes teared up in 2008 and how men get to tear up all the time. And I've seen Barack Obama and George W. Bush and Bill Clinton and George H.W. Bush and Ronald Reagan. I personally have seen them. 
And oh my God, they get points for their empathy and their sympathy and their compassion. And when Pat Schroeder, you know, cried for about three seconds, oh my gosh, she's still paying a price for it. So my eyes tear up and John Edwards, who was still in the campaign, you know, says, well, you know, you got to be tough to be president. It's a tough job. So I was really well aware of all of the downsides and therefore my composure and my calmness was not only because I think that's appropriate for a leader, but it was also because we still don't have a very broad band of acceptable behavior for women in public life. Did you feel like you had any other option other than suck it up? No, I did not. I think in retrospect, I might have. And that's part of what I was trying to point out to the reader when I wrote about the second debate. You know, this was right on the heels of the Hollywood Access tape. Everybody in the country saw it. Everybody in the world saw it. And we're about to have a debate, and he's pulling all kinds of stunts, and I'm getting ready to walk out on the debate stage. And, you know, my chief of debate prep, a great guy named Ron Klain, says, you know, he's trying to get into your head. Now, we had practiced him stalking me on the debate stage. And my conclusion, supported by my team, was just ignore it. Don't pay any attention to it. You know, just act like a president. So I'm out there, and he's stalking, and he's leering, and he's making faces. And I'm, like, in my head thinking, okay, I'm used to just sort of powering through any distraction. This is very uncomfortable, having this guy do this to me. I know what he's trying to do, which is to somehow throw me off. So I'm not going to let him. So that was... I stuck with option A, which was what I had thought about and practiced. But, you know, option B would have been to turn on him, you know, either through dismissiveness or some kind of sarcasm to really try to score a point on him. And I didn't do it because I worried that it would be seen as anger or weakness and that it would redound to my detriment. But that's the kind of stuff you have to think about all the time. Yeah. Part of the burden is just having to do that math all the time. All the time. Yeah. And it's exhausting. <laughs> if you if you didn't have to do the math, what would you have done? I probably would have done what I did. You know, I was judged to have won the debate. I won all three debates. And I had a very strong belief that at the end of the day, people were going to say, well, who do I want handling North Korea? <laughs> who do I want, you know, fighting for me and my country? And they were going to say, you know, this other guy's entertaining and he hosted a reality TV show, but no, he's not what I want in the Oval Office. And, you know, I would be steady. I would be predictable. Um, and, you know, so that's the bet I made. Do you regret that? I regret it to the extent that I don't know what might have happened if I could have pulled off something different. And part of the reason I go to this length and talking about it in the book is I hope there will be other women running and I will bet everything I've got they'll face the same kinds of challenges. So I'm hoping they can see what I went through and my candor in talking about it and learn some valuable lessons and think ahead about how to deal with, uh, you know, this kind of endemic uh, sexism and misogyny.
I hope they never have to run against somebody who is like, you know, exhibit A of uh, well, that, that behavior. But that's part of it, right? It's like on some level you would have faced that no matter what. And yet also you happen to face like a textbook definition creep. Yes. Is maybe the thing yeah, you could say. Yeah, back off creep. Yeah. <laughs> that's what I like, was thinking I should say. It wasn't subtle. No, it wasn't subtle. And see, I thought because it was so blatant, people would be turned off. And I think a lot of women were. I mean, I've heard that from many women. And, you know, I think it solidified my vote, but it also fed the hyper-aggressive masculinity theme that he was playing for his supporters. Uh, you know, we, we really were almost running campaigns in two different Americas. I mean, his campaign was aimed at the angry, the resentful, uh, the hateful, he stoked it. He started his campaign calling Mexican immigrants rapists and criminals. He went after all kinds of people in such a really offensive way. But it fed the desire on the part of those who wanted to throw it all up and wanted something totally different and who were wrongly convinced that uh, – you know, political correctness infringes free speech as opposed to, you know, being respectful and tolerant of people who are different from yourself. And there was just a deep need to find scapegoats. And fascinatingly, it wasn't the poor and striving who were feeling this. I mean, people who made less than $50,000 voted for me. People who said the economy was their number one issue voted for me. The average Trump voter in the primaries had an income of about $72,000. It was people who just thought they deserved better. They deserved more. And that somebody, somebody was standing in the way. And then, of course, what we saw in Charlottesville was that there truly is in our country a deep, destructive cohort of people who identify with Nazis and the Ku Klux Klan, who call themselves white supremacists, who see Putin, this white authoritarian leader, uh, as a role model. That was a surprise to me, I have to tell you. How do you get uh, the news? How do I get the news? Yeah, how do you get the news? I spend a lot of time online reading traditional news sources, New York Times, Washington Post, etc., I spent a lot of time on Twitter. You're just scrolling Twitter? Just scrolling. Like sitting on the couch? Yeah, sitting on the couch. I listen to NPR. That's Be such a bummer that you're just scrolling Twitter. Don't do that. <laughs> I, I am open to all advice. I have started listening to podcasts. That's not exactly breaking news, but it's newsy. Um, so that's how I'm basically, and occasionally I watch TV. Do you follow this stuff closely? Yes, I do. I read, I read newspapers too. This is kind of a question about writing too, I think. Like... I have a theory. Okay, good. You can tell me whether, whether, I like theories. whether or not you buy this theory. Yeah. A thing that people have asked me, the f few people I told I was doing this have asked me, uh, a couple of other people on Twitter have asked it too, you've probably <laughs> seen it, is uh, like, why I do this? Mm -hmm. Why write a book? And a theory that I have, which you can confirm or deny, is that this is what you do. You work. I do. And you follow what is happening in the world and engage with it. And you were part of a historic campaign. And this book is 
the work of processing what happened. Is that is that theory right? It's 100% right. The book was a processing of what happened. I found it very important to do. And as I have said, it was cathartic. I like to work. I am somebody who organizes my time around what I am doing. And what I do is related to what I care about. And what I really care about is public service and good government and balanced, smart politics. What time of day do you write? Usually in the morning, because I'm exhausted by the night, usually. Um, but in the morning, you, that's that's the best time for me to write. Then I revise and, you know, in, in the process of writing this book, I was, you know, sending drafts to my writing team and my fact-checking guy, and we were going back and forth, and that would come in the afternoon, and then I'd work on it. But literally toward the end, it was like 24-7. What kind of feedback were you getting on those early drafts? It was mixed. I mean, some of what I was writing was too bitter, too angry, too cynical. Um, And they were not shy about telling me that. And some of it was too general, not focused or specific. So I just had to get into the groove where I was going to pull the curtain back and talk about what happened in the most straightforward, candid way I could. Uh, And the team was terrific in giving me great feedback and, and helping me think through a lot of the writing challenges. Did you uh, become less bitter uh, or was the bitterness like the, the true candor <laughs> and then you had to just like uh, tone it down a little bit? Cause... It, it was both. I mean, I did become less bitter, but uh, I also had to like read every sentence, you know, 10 times to make sure it said what I intended for it to say. And sometimes, you know, I wanted it to have an edge and sometimes I didn't. I turned in the first draft sometime in May. So I pretty much worked on it for, you know, three and a half months nonstop. This book's like 450 pages long. You wrote it in yeah. three months? No, no. I wrote it in six months. I turned in the first draft ah. like three and a half months in. That's still really fast. Yeah, it was. And, and, and the, but the response was positive from the publisher. And so they came back. And originally, I thought this book would come out around, you know, Thanksgiving or Christmas. And they came back and they said, you got a lot of good stuff in there. You still need to do a lot of work. If you can get it done by the end of June, we could get it out in September. I said, okay, so September 26th or so. And getting it done in June would, you know, mean July you'd copy edit it, August you'd do the audio, you know. So they were willing to put it on a faster track. And so then the next draft went in, and they really liked that. And they came back and they said, you know, if you could get everything done by the end of July, we could get it out even earlier. I figured, what the heck, you know, in for a dime, in for a dollar, might as well. So it was just around the clock. I was so tired, I could barely see. I heard that there were like, uh, there were some all-nighters. Oh, many all-nighters in this house. You know, people would come to to edit, to fact check, uh, argue still right up to the last minute. And then they'd sleep all over the place (laughs) and eat, you know, junk food. I talk to writers a lot and that thing happens sometimes where it's not necessarily like a publisher saying hit this deadline, but like you're just kind of like in the flow of it. Yes. Was that how it was for you? Yes, it really was. That's a very good description. Yes. I, I, I could feel all of the pieces coming together. I thought I had a case to make about what happened. I was buttressing it, validating it. And then I really 
wanted to tell some personal stories in it because I wanted people to understand where I was coming from. And then I wanted to end it by pointing people uh, to the future. You know, here's what you can do and here's how you can make a difference. And so it did consume me. It was a very fast flow at the end. One thing that's interesting to me reading it is it's it's quite like lawyerly at points. Like you really like lay out the argument. Right. There's sort of like a TikTok on Comey and there's like, okay, let's go through Wisconsin and what happened there. And it's kind of this point mm-hmm. by point thing. Is that is that kind of the way you think? It is. It's very much the way I think. But this book was different from anything I've ever written to be published. Why? Because it was much more personal and it really was pulling back the curtain and letting people see everything from what it's like being a woman on the campaign trail and how much time you spend on hair and makeup, 25 days when it was all added up. And then it was making a case. And there were several things I felt I had to make a case on. You know, I had a point of view about the emails and the craziness and the lies and the exaggeration that was out there that hurt me so much. And I took responsibility for making the first, you know, dumb mistake of doing it. But it was a really even dumber scandal. And I wanted to, for history's sake, to say, okay, here are the facts, not from me, but from other voices, Rod Rosenstein being one and others as well. And when it came to Russia, it was such a complicated story that I thought had so much importance to whether our democracy is going to survive. And I don't want to sound too dramatic, but that's what I think, that I I had to be just as careful as possible and lay down the chronology and, you know, what we knew when and why it matters. I wanted it to be both personal and political and to try to find the right, you know, meld of that. Was it different to write a book without the kind of like specter of some future race sitting in front yeah, of you? Yeah, it is. It's very different. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, done as a political candidate. I'm not done with politics. I intend to be very active and to try to make a difference and get people involved and support candidates and all of that. But I am always amazed. You know, I ran against a lot of men. I ran against a bunch of men in 08. I ran against a bunch of men in, you know, 2016. They're never asked, why are you doing this? What does this mean to you? I mean, it's like so weird. And I thought, okay, I'm going to tell you the best I can why I do what I do. And you can like it or not. But here is what I thought should have been obvious over my decades of public life. But in case it's not, I'm going to remind you. Okay, so just so I'm clear, you're, you're uh, not running for anything again? No, no, <laughs> no, no. But I sure want to make sure Democrats get elected. That's my goal. There's been these uh, two strands of criticism that you've probably seen while you've been scrolling Twitter, which I really recommend you don't do. Okay, I'll um, stop. I'll thank you. Uh, one of them is like, why even do this? Yeah. Go away. Shut down and... Shut up. Yeah. Yeah, I know. I've seen that. And who cares? You know, my attitude is, you know, if you don't want to listen to me, don't listen to me. But you're not going to shut me up and I'm not going away. And you don't say that about any man who ever lost. So just go get a life. We're done. (laughs) I have no more. I have no further questions. Uh, The thing I was going to ask you about is the other the other criticism, which is like, She's not taking responsibility. Oh, yeah. I'm sick of that, too. I mean, I lay out every 
mistake I think I made, every mistake I did make. I take responsibility ultimately for my loss. I mean, these are the kind of people who have access to grind or who are themselves a little guilty. And a lot of them are frankly in the press. A lot of them thought I was going to win, whether they liked it or not. And so they just beat the heck out of me day in and day out. And the negative coverage that I received was so much greater than what Trump received. Uh, every study, whether it's Harvard, Pew, Gallup, you name it, and I put a lot of them in the book. And I think there needs to be some soul searching in the press because they let this guy sort of slip through and uh, we're paying a big price for it. I was struck reading because like the first 50 pages or so, you kind of keep saying like, I made mistakes and we'll get to those. Uh, but first, this or this or this. And then it came. And it feels to me like you pretty clearly say that you didn't have a feel for where America was when you ran. Like you ran a race from a different moment in time almost. I would slightly amend that. Please do. I would say that I ran a campaign that built on successful campaigns. Many of the people were veterans of you know, the Obama campaign, other successful campaigns, and we took it to the next level. I mean, our data operation, our analytics operation, everything we took to the next level. Our policy development, we took it to the next level. And we were, and I personally was very well aware of the you know, the anger, disappointment, insecurity that a lot of people in the electorate felt. And what I think I missed was that historically, you're held to a certain standard when you run for president about what you think you're actually going to do. And there, was, there would always be a moment in a debate, maybe, or an interview where a presidential candidate had to say, well, yeah, uh, you know, this is what we're going to do, and here's how we're going to do it. And maybe the interviewer or the debate, you know, opponent would say, well, how are you going to pay for it, and what does it mean, and what difference is it going to make? And I always thought that moment would come, and it never did. And so my preparation, my understanding of what actually would make a difference in people's lives was not enough for the electorate that was incredibly disappointed and discouraged and angry to be able to hear what I was saying. You know, look, I won more votes. So a lot of people heard, a lot of people agreed, a lot of people voted for me. But when I ran for the Senate in 2000, I didn't win upstate New York. I didn't expect to win rural America. Democrats don't. I didn't expect to win white voters. Democrats don't. You know, people make a big deal about women. I won women. I lost white women, but I got more votes from white women than Obama got from white women. So my campaign was not the first to face these problems. And when I ran for the Senate, I worked really hard to send a message to rural, small-town New York that I was going to be on their side. They did not vote for me, but I got enough votes, right? And I swept downstate, so I won. So in preparing for this campaign, I thought, you know, I'm going to have the same problem. I've got the white voter problem, which any Democrat has. I've got the rural, small town problem, and that is manifest in the Electoral College. But if I can break through so that they know, you know, I really have a workable jobs infrastructure plan. I have the best idea for making college affordable. 
I know what we're going to do to, you know, deal with clean energy in a way that produces jobs. I really was ready to be president. But I was not, it's just not how I'm wired. I was not going to feed the anger. I was not going to say, oh, you know, I'm as angry as you are. I'm as mad as you are and start yelling and screaming, which men can get away with, but women can't, even though I yelled and screamed some. So I think there was a mismatch between the kind of leadership I was offering and what a lot of Americans were yearning for, which was, you know, emotional satisfaction. And if you look at where I won, I won in places that represent about two-thirds of the American economy. I won in places where people are future-oriented, optimistic. Like even in the reddest states, I would win, you know, the most urban area. I would win the college areas. I won where people could see a future where they belonged. I lost where people either had given up or refused to try to be part of that future. And Trump was masterful at the dog whistles and the blame. And it wasn't so different from what happened in previous elections, um, but there were some additional forces at work. I mean, but for Comey, I believe I would have won, despite the headwinds. But for the Russians weaponizing stolen emails through WikiLeaks, I believe I would have done better in a lot of the places where I lost so narrowly. And that's what the book proves. And so I didn't come across as effectively as I wished I could because I was facing an opponent who would say or do anything which was very gratifying to people who, for whatever combination of reasons, uh, were wanting to, you know, just throw the apple cart over. Do you regret not doing that? I couldn't be as angry. I don't believe in that. I couldn't be as uh, unrealistic. I couldn't be as willing to stoke bigotry and bias and prejudice and paranoia. That's not who I am. It's not what I believe. You know, I'd gotten a lot of criticism for my slogan in the general election, Stronger Together, right? People said, oh, well, you know, what did that mean? But it's what I believe. It really is what I believe. And I think this divisiveness that Trump just exploited to his benefit is so bad for America. And it's bad for the very people who are being taken advantage of because they're being used by him. And whether they will ever come to believe that or not, I don't know. But I see it. You know, okay, where is his infrastructure program? Where is his coal country program? I had a $30 billion coal country program. You know, where is his wall? Where is all this stuff that he promised, which, you know, fed the beast uh, and gave him the margin that he got? Nowhere. Nowhere. It was all made up. He doesn't believe anything. He doesn't care about anything except how he is perceived. Uh, so whether people come to grips with that or not, I can't say, but I'm going to do everything I can, starting with this book, at least to raise the questions. What do you wish that people asked you? What, like, what in this, however long it's been, 10 months, like, what have people not asked you? Well, what I wish would be the overwhelming question people ask me is, okay, what can we do? And how do we do it? 
Because after you've vented and expressed your disappointment and your despair, okay, what are we going to do? And sometimes when I answer, I can tell people are disappointed because I say, well, the most important thing you can do is vote in every election. You know, if you're in New Jersey or Virginia, vote this year. If you're anywhere in America, vote next year. If we can take back the House in 2018, we can begin to cabin this administration off from further damage. Because remember, he is diverting us with his headlines and his tweets and his actions. Below the surface, they're turning back every regulation in the Labor Department, in the Environmental Protection Agency. I mean, they are undoing, you know, monuments that represent our natural grandeur in the Interior Department. They are dismantling so much of what has been achieved, uh, and they're going to keep doing it unless they can be stopped. And the only way we can stop them is to have a Democratic Congress. But then how do we try to maximize the vote we're going to get? Well, that's why I'm working in this new organization that I started called Onward Together to support grassroots groups. You know, so many smart, committed, energetic people sprang up after the election, a bunch of them in Brooklyn and other places. And they said, hey, we want to recruit candidates. We want to teach people how to go to town halls. We want to train candidates. We want to help fundraise for them. You know, we're not going to just leave it to the you know, powers that be. We want to be in the mix. And so I'm like, great. So I'm helping them. And then I want to help support individual candidates. And then I want to help you know, people who are fighting on behalf of causes I believe in, whether it's Planned Parenthood or the ACLU or the Human Rights Campaign or whatever it might be. And I'm really dedicated to using whatever platform I have to try to give people some positive direction so that there is something that they feel that they can enlist in and and work on. You make this point in the book, and I hadn't thought about it that way, that like you won the optimists and lost the cynics. And uh, that's a very powerful way to think about the, the splits and division in the country. How does one stay optimistic when DACA is getting struck down? Yeah, yeah. no, and... it's hard. I mean, I, I don't want to soft pedal it. It's hard. But I do have some sense of historic proportion, okay? I mean, we did fight a civil war. That was pretty bad. We had a Great Depression, and I'm old enough to have had parents who lived through it. So that was like a part of my daily life as, you know, eat the food on your table because we didn't have any, right? We went into a world war. We faced the threat of Soviet nuclear uh, uh, power against us. I mean, we, we have faced a lot of really tough times. But through it all, we might have some setbacks. We kept making progress. I'm proud to be a Democrat, and I'm proud that it was the Democratic Party that brought us, you know, Civil Rights Act and Voting Rights Act and Medicare and, and Medicaid and peace between Israel and Egypt and, you know, a balanced budget and broad-based prosperity and saving the auto industry and saving the economy. I'm proud of that. That did not happen by accident. People who believe politically as I believe, they know how hard change is. It doesn't come just by wishing for it or talking about it or, you know, waving, you know, some book or magic wand. It happens because people keep going at it year after year. And I think this country is worth our best efforts. I think it's worth our, our love and loyalty, our devotion. 
Um, and I think we are still the most exceptional country in the history of the world. So if I believe that, which I do, I want to convey that, not in some kind of uh, you know, Pollyannish way, but in saying, this is worth fighting for. And politics is the process through which we resolve these national debates and challenges. And I don't want to see us go backwards. I mean, really, Trump's whole campaign was a, a call uh, to return to a nostalgic time in the past when, you know, bothersome people like women and immigrants and Muslims and all those people weren't around to challenge the existing power structure. Well, we're here now, and we're not going away. And I want us to make the most of our time. Are you optimistic? I am optimistic. Through it all, despite everything, I am optimistic. First of all, I find it a much better way to live. <laughs> so it's a personal choice. But I am optimistic because I think that it is in America's DNA to be optimistic. I just don't want to see us uh, lose that. And I'm going to do everything I can to make sure we don't. I got to tell you, it actually is like helpful to see you seem good. Yeah, thank you. Well, I am good. And I, I want people to feel better because I am. Because I, I want us you know, not to be defeated by this guy who represents everything that I think is, <laughs> is wrong. So we're not going to let it happen. I think that's good. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks for listening to With Her. I'm Max Linsky. Hillary Clinton is my uh, co-host on the show. And you should keep the feed open because we might come back. You never know. This is too funny. I bet it's Chardonnay. <laughs> Whoa! Wow, that's a good one. That's higher, you know, value than I usually have. Love it, love it, love it. And Humo, you take this upstairs. Put it in the fridge for me. You never know when I might need it. 